Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Agent Angela, and you are listening to X-Files Truth. Evidence of extraterrestrial existence remains as elusive as ever. Have you ever found a metal implant in your body? For although we may not be alone in the universe, in our own separate ways, on this planet, we are all alone. Everywhere. Yeah, that's a bleeping dead alien body if I ever bleeping saw one. The truth is out. Welcome back to X Files Truth. Today's file is Jose Chung's From Outer Space. X File Number Classified. The Plot. A teenage couple in Class County, Washington, are returning from a date one evening when their car suddenly stops. They see a UFO and are captured by a pair of gray aliens. However, the aliens are themselves soon confronted by a giant third alien from another race. Scully is interviewed about the case by famed author Jose Chung who's seeking to write a book about alien abductions and the UFO phenomenon. I had never thought much about it before. I guess that's because I always felt like such an alien myself, that to be concerned with aliens from other planets, that just seems so uh, redundant. Well, I'd never actually considered it much myself before I started this job. Yes, now, if I understand it correctly, your partner is the uh, actual expert. Yes, and I feel that I must apologize for his refusal to speak with you, Mr. Chung, but uh, I must admit I probably wouldn't have myself if I wasn't such an admirer of your work. Oh. The, the Lonely Buddha is one of my favorite oh. novels. Oh. And here I was thinking you were just some brainy beauty. Now I find out that you also have good taste. What made you decide to write a book on an alien abduction if you're not that interested in the subject matter? Actually, it was my publisher's idea. At first, I was reluctant until I realized that I had an opportunity here to create an entirely new literary genre, a nonfiction science fiction. Now, see, that gimmick alone will guarantee its landing on the bestseller list. In short, to answer your question, money. Well, just as long as you're attempting to record the truth. God, no, how can I possibly do that? What do you mean? I spent three months in Class County. And everybody there has a different version of what truly happened. Truth is as subjective as reality. That will help explain why when people talk about their UFO experiences, they always start off with, well, now, I know how crazy this is going to sound, but... So you're here to get my version of the truth. Exactly. Scully notes that the girl, Chrissy, 
was found with all her clothes inside out, appearing to be the victim of date rape. Her date, Harold, is brought in by the police. He claims that he did not rape Chrissy, but they were both abducted by aliens. The foul-mouthed local detective, Manners, does not believe Harold's story, but Mulder has Chrissy undergo hypnosis in which she describes being on a spaceship surrounded by aliens. Harold claims to have encountered a cigarette-smoking alien on the ship who kept repeating, this is not happening. Mulder is convinced that Chrissy and Harold were abducted by aliens, but Scully thinks it's more plausible that the two teenagers simply had consensual sex and are struggling to deal with the emotional aftermath. The agents then speak to an electrical power company lineman named Rocky Crickinson, who claims he witnessed the abduction of Harold and Chrissy, and then turned his eyewitness account into a screenplay entitled The Truth About Aliens. He recounts a strange visit from a pair of men in black who told him that the UFO he thought he saw the night before was merely the planet Venus and threatened to kill him if he told anyone otherwise. But you know, myths about men in black garments have been recorded throughout history in many different cultures. The Celtic legends are filled with trickster men in black and how anyone who encounters them becomes enchanted. Unfortunately, I'm not sure the modern reconstruction of ancient fairy tales lends any more credence to Rocky's testimony. Even the former leader of your United States of America, James Earl Carter Jr., thought he saw a UFO once. But it's been proven he only saw the planet Venus. I'm a Republican. Venus was at its peak brilliance last night. You probably thought you saw something up in the sky other than Venus. But I assure you, it was Venus. I know what I saw. Your scientists have yet to discover how neural networks create self-consciousness, let alone how the human brain processes two-dimensional retinal images into the three-dimensional phenomenon known as perception. Yet you somehow brazenly declare seeing is believing? Mr. Crickinson, your scientific illiteracy makes me shudder. And I wouldn't flaunt your ignorance by telling anyone that you saw anything last night other than the planet Venus. Because if you do, you're a dead man. You can't threaten me. I just did. Rocky's screenplay describes his meeting with a giant third alien who calls himself Lord Kinboat, who took him to the center of the earth and told Rocky that he had a great mission for him. In telling Rocky's version of events to Jose Chung, Scully explains that Rocky suffers from a fantasy-prone personality. Mulder, however, thinks that Rocky's story contains some partial truths and 
decides to have Chrissy rehypnotized. This time, Chrissy claims that she was captured by the U.S. military, not aliens, and that they brainwashed her into believing that she was abducted by aliens. Chung speaks to a science fiction fanatic, Blaine, who found an alien body that was subsequently recovered by Mulder, Scully, and Detective Manners. Blaine thinks that Mulder and Scully are a couple of men in black. He claims that Mulder was emotionless, but shrieked like a woman when he saw the alien, and that Scully, whom Blaine believed was a man dressed like a woman, threatened him and told him not to talk to anyone about the alien body. I know how crazy this is going to sound, but I want to be abducted by aliens. Why? Whatever for? I hate this town. I hate people. I just want to be taken away to some place where I I don't have to worry about finding a job. So you were out in the field that night? Looking for UFOs. There'd been some recent sightings in that area, so I was just hoping to stumble across one. Now, I've read every book ever written about UFOs and aliens, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. And I should have known to just go get my video camera then instead of notifying the proper authorities. What was wrong with doing that? Because the proper authority showed up with a couple of men in black. One of them was disguised as a woman, but wasn't pulling it off. Like, her hair was red, but it was a little too red, you know? And the other one, the tall, lanky one, his face was so blank and expressionless. He didn't even seem human. I, I think he was a mandroid. The only time he reacted was when he saw the dead body. Yeah, that's a bleeping dead alien body if I ever bleeping saw one. Wrap it up. You got him? <laughs> you never saw this. This didn't happen. You tell anyone, you're a dead man. <sighs> He said I said what? When I interviewed him, he claimed you threatened him. That's ridiculous. Mulder allows Blaine to videotape Scully performing an autopsy on the alien, which is quickly released as a video labeled Dead Alien, Truth or Humbug, that's narrated by the stupendous Yappy. Who is that mysterious man who seems to be overseeing the proceedings? And what secret government agency does this autopsy doctor work for? The autopsy reveals that the alien is actually a dead Air Force pilot in an alien costume. His superiors arrive to claim the body, but find it missing. Mulder tricks the military officers into revealing the identity of a second missing Air Force pilot, Lieutenant Jack Schaefer. As Mulder remembers it, that night he found Schaefer walking naked down a highway in Class County. After getting him some clothes, Mulder takes Schaefer to a diner where the pilot explains that he and his partner were dressed as aliens while piloting a secret U.S. military vehicle designed to resemble a UFO. He thinks that he and his partner were abducted by real aliens in a real UFO, but Schaefer is also unsure if his surroundings are real or a hallucination, and he tells Mulder that he may not even exist himself he cannot be sure. His superiors soon come and take him away, 
before leaving the diner with the military officer, he tells Mulder that, I'm a dead man. The diner's cook, however, has a different version of the story. He tells Jose Chung that Mulder was in the diner by himself that night with no one else and that he kept asking the cook strange questions about UFOs and alien abductions while ordering piece after piece of sweet potato pie. That is odd, because almost every day I was there I ate lunch at that diner and became dear friends with the cook. He told me a story about the night you're talking about. A man came into his place, sweet potato sat down, ordered sweet potato pie, identified himself as FBI agent Mulder. He then questioned my friend. You ever seen a UFO in these parts? He then ordered piece after piece, each time asking another question. You ever experienced a period of missing time? You ever had the suspicion that you've been abducted by aliens? Have you ever found a metal implant in your body? Have you checked everywhere? After leaving the diner, Mulder returns to their motel and finds the men in black seen earlier in Scully's room. Scully? Where's Scully? Oh, she, uh, she went to get some ice. Where is she? Scully, what's going on here? Mulder, these gentlemen have something very important to tell you. Some alien encounters are hoaxes perpetrated by your government to manipulate the public. Some of these hoaxes are intentionally revealed to manipulate the truth seekers who become discredited if they disclose the deliberately absurd deception. Well, similar things are said about the men in black, that they purposely dress and behave strangely so that if anyone tries to describe an encounter with them, they come off sounding like a lunatic. I find absolutely no reason why anyone would think you crazy if you describe this meeting of ours. Scully appears to be in a trance and has no memory of seeing the men in black. The next morning, Mulder, Scully, and Detective Manners hear about the crash of an Air Force plane and head to the crash site where the bodies of the two Air Force pilots they met earlier are recovered. Mulder visits with Chung, pleading with him not to publish the book since it will further discredit UFO researchers and witnesses by making them look ridiculous. Chung dismisses Mulder and publishes the book anyway, which Scully reads in her office. In his book, Chung describes the fates of the various people he interviewed. Rocky has moved to California and founded a spiritual cult based on the teachings he believes he received from Lord Kinboat. Blaine has replaced him as a power company lineman and continues to search for UFOs most nights. Mulder, whom Chung describes as a ticking time bomb of insanity, watches video footage of Bigfoot and Harold professes his love to Chrissy, who rejects him as too immature, as her UFO experience has given her a new commitment to philanthropy and helping humanity. Evidence of extraterrestrial existence remains as elusive as ever, but the skies will continue to be searched by the likes of Blaine Faulkner, hoping to someday find not only proof of alien life, 
but also contentment on a new world. Until then, he must be content with his new job. Others search for answers from within. Rocky relocated to El Cajon, California, preaching to the lost and desperate. Seeking the truth about aliens means a perfunctory nine-to-five job to some. For although Agent Diana Lesky is noble of spirit and pure at heart, she remains nevertheless a federal employee. As for her partner, Raynard Muldrake, a ticking time bomb of insanity, his question to the unknown has so warped his psyche, one shudders to think how he receives any pleasures from life. Chrissy Giorgio has come to believe her alien visitation was a message to improve the condition of her own world, and she has devoted herself to this goal wholeheartedly. Then there are those who care not about extraterrestrials, searching for meaning in other human beings. Rare or lucky are those who find it. For although we may not be alone in the universe, in our own separate ways on this planet, we are all alone. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Usually I don't like the funny episodes or the light-hearted episodes, but for some reason this one really is good and it's a lot better than I remembered it. I love how they tie in the men in black and uh, just the odd behavior of everybody, the story itself. It seemed really hokey at first. I remember when I first saw this episode, I almost didn't want to watch the episode because it looked so hokey, you know, like a B-movie. It just almost looked like it was going to be ridiculous. But if you just watch it, especially past that first scene, it seems to get better and better as you watch it. So it goes from looking like a dumb episode, which how I kind of remembered it as sometimes, uh, and it just turns into being a much better episode. It's an excellent episode. And we get, you know, good cameos from people like Jesse Ventura, who's a real conspiracy uh, person, <laughs> we'll say. Uh, he's really out there, but uh, he's very interesting. I like to uh, listen to his his uh, speeches, and he's got a show that's out there too, um, I forget what it's called at the moment, but I think it's actually called Conspiracy, or Conspiracy Theory, that's what it is, with Bessie, uh, Jesse Ventura, Alex Trebek also makes an appearance in this, and some other people, some good actors, it's it's a, it's an excellent episode, I would definitely recommend it, it's not a monster, I mean it is a monster of the week, um, it's probably, for a monster of the week, I'd almost give it a 10, yeah, maybe I would for a, for a monster of the week, it's not a mythology episode though, so... Uh, compared to all episodes, including mythologies, it's still a really good one. Like I said, made a strong comeback uh, in my book. So uh, maybe I'll give it a 9. I'm very surprised I would even do that. But like I said, the first opening scene just brought it down for me. But strong comeback after that. So let's just give it a 9 for the sequelizer. It definitely has a high potential for a sequel as long as people are being ducted and UFOs are out there. Stories of men in black and everything else. It's definitely got a high, uh, high potential for a sequel. So um, I know this is going to be a really long episode because we have some really good files that people have sent in. We have a, a long feedback section, some other updates and things like that. So I'm, I'm wasting time talking now. I'm going to try to shorten it up here a little, but it's going to be a long episode. Hopefully, hopefully you guys really enjoy it. So that closes the file for Jose Chung's From Outer Space, at least from my uh, plot portion of it.
So pending any further evidence, this case, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, is filed open. Now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Agents, this is Agent Angela. Right away, there seems to be some disagreement between Mulder and Scully over meeting with Jose Chung and telling him the account of what allegedly happened, with what appears to be a case with all the classic markings of a UFO abduction tale. We don't actually get to see in the beginning what exactly they disagreed over, but we can infer that Mulder is definitely not okay with an abduction case being reviewed by a fiction novelist and thus treated as a fiction story. Scully apologizes for Mulder's absence, and I get the feeling he's probably going to get an earful from her about it later on, after she tells Chung what supposedly happened. I've always really liked Jose Chung as a character. He's eccentric, witty, and quick with the turns of phrase. What's not to like? There's an interesting point about the word use of abductee versus experiencer. It's just one of the many subtle references to movies about UFO encounters. In this instance, the debate over these terms was first seen in Communion, the 1989 film based on Whitley Strieber's book of the same name. Anyway, Mulder prefers abductee, although some famous, allegedly true UFO abduction cases involve people who prefer the term experiencer. I'd venture this comes from what happened to his sister. True to her skeptic form, Scully prefers neither. When Scully gets up to where she and Mulder question Chrissy's boyfriend Harold, and then Chrissy herself, Mulder asks Chrissy a lot of questions about what abductees often suffer from after they're returned. Scully's standing in the corner and looking obviously dismissive and even exasperated with this line of questioning about post-abduction syndrome. She still keeps that same skeptical look as Chrissy gets hypnotized. Since she's recounted that we still don't truly know what hypnosis is or how it works. Yet, this brings up an interesting point. Mulder was famously hypnotized about Samantha's abduction in season one. Scully listened to the tapes of it back in Conduit in a rather heartbreaking scene. But now, could she possibly think Mulder was prone to confabulation then as well? Seems like kind of a $64,000 question to me. The next scene of note is when Mulder and Scully are in the motel room reading through Rocky Crickinson's script. We've only seen them in the same motel room a small handful of times since season one. And it's pretty entertaining to see Scully's expression as Mulder reads through the tale of traveling to inner space to the molten core. You can tell she's thinking along the lines of, how much more of this bleep do I have to listen to? When's it gonna end? As we recall, this refers to Rocky. 
In short, Rocky showed signs of being what is known as a fantasy-prone personality. Agent Scully, you are so kind-hearted. He's a nut! I just read his manifesto. It's also pretty funny to see how Scully acts around Mulder, in sharp contrast to how she acts around Jose Chung. It's one example of how the show writing creates that slight mental dissonance that keeps us slightly on edge. While Mulder's had his share of peculiar notions, he's not inclined to dismiss anything outright. Mulder, you're nuts. A bit later, Mulder and Scully are interestingly described as two men in black, and that Scully isn't pulling it off very well. Then we get to hear Mulder's girly scream, actually sounds more like a yelp to me, over the bleeping dead alien that turns out to be a man in a costume. They have some minor disagreement over letting the Air Force officers see their previously kidnapped colleague, but they can't deny this. Guess he's still AWOL. When Mulder encounters the men in black face to face in his motel room, he gets noticeably riled up when Scully isn't there, despite Ventura's answer that she just went to get some ice, which turns out to be the truth in that instance. Although, Scully appears to be in something of a hypnotized trance, as she only says they have something important to tell him. And the next morning, she has no memory of this exchange. Finally, Mulder meets with Jose Chung and tries to discourage him from writing this book, because it will only make those involved seem ridiculous. But, it will happen all the same. In the end, there's a final turn into the unexpected, with Jose Chung's voiceover commentary about Mulder as Mulder lays in bed watching TV. It's easy to think for a second Mulder's indulging in some more adult entertainments. But no, not this time. Turns out he's watching the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot video footage. To wrap it up, Scully seems rather philosophical in the end about this twisted maze of events that have transpired. I know it probably doesn't have the sense of closure that you want, but it has more than some of our other cases. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence. With X3.20, Jose Chung's from Outer Space. Original air date April 12, 1996. Written by Darren Morgan. Directed by Rob Bowman. Truth is as subjective as reality. What an amazing episode, with homages to Rocky Erickson, Ray Harryhausen, Alien Autopsy Factor Fiction, Whitley Stryber's Communion, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and of course Star Wars. Well, we also get multiple retellings of certain events. Men in Black, Hypnosis, Alien Abductions, More Stupendous Yappy, a little Bigfoot, and how could you forget Lord Kinboat? 
In American popular culture and UFO conspiracy theories, men in black, or MIB, are men dressed in black suits who claim to be government agents who harass or threaten UFO witnesses to keep them quiet about what they've seen. It is sometimes implied that they may be aliens themselves. The term is also frequently used to describe mysterious men working for unknown organizations, as well as various branches of government allegedly designed to protect secrets or perform other strange activities. The term is generic, used for any unusual, threatening, or strangely behaved individual whose appearance on the scene can be linked in some fashion with a UFO sighting. Men in Black figure prominently in UFOlogy, sorry, ufology, and UFO folklore. In 1947, Harold Dahl claimed to have been warned not to talk about his alleged UFO sighting on Maury Island by a man in a dark suit. In the mid-1950s, ufologist Albert Binder claimed he was visited by men in dark suits who threatened and warned him not to continue investigating UFOs. Binder believed men in black were secret government agents tasked with suppressing evidence of UFOs. The late ufologist John Keel claimed to have encounters with men in black and referred to them as demonic supernaturals with dark skin and or exotic facial features. According to ufologist Jerome Clark, reports of men in black represent experiences that don't seem to have occurred in the world of consensus reality. Men in black may also be related to or from the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigations, AFOSI, or just OSI which is a U.S. federal law enforcement agency that reports directly to the Office of the Secretary of the Air Force. Operating worldwide, AFOSI provides independent criminal investigative, counterintelligence, and protective service operations outside of the traditional military chain of command. AFOSI proactively identifies, investigates, and neutralizes serious criminal, terrorist, and espionage threats to personnel and resources of the U.S. Air Force and the Department of Defense, thereby protecting the national security of the United States. AFOSI was founded August 1, 1948, at the suggestion of Congress to consolidate investigative activities in the Air Force. Secretary of the Air Force W. Stuart Symington created AFOSI and patterned it after the FBI. He appointed Special Agent Joseph Carroll, a senior FBI official and assistant to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, as the first AFOSI commander and charged him with providing independent, unbiased, and centrally directed investigations of criminal activity in the Air Force, who later became the first director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. As of 2007, the AFOSI has 2,900 employees, and after pilot training, OSI remains the second most requested career choice in the U.S. Air Force. Their capabilities including protecting critical technologies and information to detect and mitigate threats, provide global specialized services, conduct major criminal investigations, and engage foreign adversaries and threats offensively. OSI's cornerstone is to vigorously solve crime, protect secrets, warn of threats, exploit intelligence opportunities, and operate in cyber-terrorism. The Men in Black origins also begin back around Roswell in MJ-12. Majestic-12, or MJ-12, is alleged to have been the code name of a secret committee of scientists, military leaders, and government officials formed in 1947 by an executive order by U.S. President Harry S. Truman. The purpose of the committee was stated in the Wilbert Smith memo to have been to investigate the slew of reports of flying saucer sightings that were then being received by U.S. military intelligence 
and in particular to look into the possible physics and technology of propulsion of the aerial objects that were being reported. The information of the committee is, because of the timing, widely believed to have been precipitated by the recovery of a UFO north of Roswell, New Mexico, during the months of June and July of 1947. Indication of such a group's existence may have appeared in a 1978 declassified Canadian document, though neither the term MJ-12 nor any of its ascribed variations were mentioned. Therefore, suggesting this Canadian document is in some way evidence of MJ-12 is sheer speculation. The first reference to a classified group called MJ-12 was discovered in a suspicious document dated in 1980. In this first appearance of what is now commonly called MJ-12, the name was spelled out, not abbreviated. However, this document was later identified to be a hoax and attributed to United States Air Force Office of Special Investigations Special Agent Richard Doty, who provided it to author William Moore for the purpose, according to Moore, of feeding disinformation to Paul Benowitz, whom AFOSI was actively working to discredit. In 1984, a set of documents was allegedly discovered in United States archives, though under circumstances that are now considered questionable as well. These 1984 documents more closely resemble legitimate declassified documents, appearing to show more effort was made to have them appear genuine. Reportedly, the FBI later declared them to be completely bogus. UFO conspiracy theories and the popular media based on them sometimes incorporate Majestic 12. In the X-Files, the Men in Black refer unofficially to a group of enforcers employed by the Syndicate to execute assassinations, cover-ups, and other covert operations. It is implied that most, if not all of them, are former members of special operations units. Some, mostly shown in comedic episodes, parody the traditional view of MIBs from UFO lore. Most had no known civilian identities, though there were some exceptions, and they rarely speak. The Men in Black are analogous to the alien bounty hunters employed by the colonists. The Men in Black were, however, not as reliable as the bounty hunters, and though sometimes they were used initially, it took the more capable alien bounty hunters to complete difficult tasks. The Syndicate would use the bounty hunters only when necessary because of an increased risk of exposure. Within the X-verse, the Men in Black may refer to X, the Cleaner, Luis Cardinal, the Red-Haired Man, the Gray-Haired Man, Man in Black numbers 1 and 2 from Jose Chung, played by Alex Trebek and Jesse Ventura, Plain-Clothed Man, the Dark Man, Scott Ostelhoff, Quiet Willie, the Shooter, the Black-Haired Man, and Morris Fletcher and a couple of his companions. Now, Gray Aliens. Gray aliens, also referred to as greys, Roswell greys, and Zetans, are alleged extraterrestrial beings whose existence is promoted in ufological, paranormal, and New Age communities and who are named for their skin color. Around half of all reported alien encounters in the United States describe gray aliens. Such claims vary in every respect, including their nature, ETs, extradimensionals, demons, or machines, origins, moral dispositions, intentions, and physical appearances, even varying in their eponymous skin color. A composite description derived from overlap and claims would have greys as small-bodied, sexless beings with smooth, gray-colored skin, enlarged head, and large black eyes. Hey, I think that's what I look like. Never mind. The origin of the idea of the gray is commonly associated with the Betty and Barney Hill abduction claim, which took place in 1961, although skeptics see precursors in science fiction and earlier paranormal claims. 
The Gray Aliens are also famous from the Roswell UFO incident from 1947. Greys are typically depicted as dark gray-skinned, diminutive humanoid beings that possess reduced forms of, or completely lack, external human organs such as noses, ears, or sex organs. Their bodies are usually depicted as being elongated, having a small chest and lacking in muscular definition and visible skeletal structure. Their legs are shorter and jointed differently from what one would expect in a human. Their limbs are often depicted as proportionately different from a human's, their humerus and thighs are the same length as their forearms and shins, respectively. Greys are depicted as having unusually large heads in proportion to their bodies. They are depicted as having no hair anywhere on the body, including the face, and no noticeable outer ears or noses, but only small openings or orifices for ears and nostrils. They are depicted as having very small mouths and very large opaque black eyes with no discernible iris or pupil. Sometimes greys are depicted as having no noticeable nostrils or mouths. Also, reports of alleged encounters state their height to be two to four feet tall. During the early 1980s, popular culture linked greys to the alleged crash landing of a flying saucer in Roswell, New Mexico. A number of publications contain statements from individuals who claim to have seen the U.S. military handling a number of unusually proportioned bald, child-sized beings. These individuals claim that the beings had oversized heads and slanted eyes, but scant other facial features during and after the incident. In 1987, popular novelist Whitley Stryber published the book Communion, in which he describes a number of close encounters he purports to have experienced with greys and other extraterrestrial beings. The book became a New York Times bestseller, and New Line Cinema released a film adaptation starring Christopher Walken in 1989. Greys are commonly included in alien abduction claims. Some alien abduction reports have depicted variant skin colors such as blue-gray, green-gray, or purple-gray, and sometimes not gray at all. The skin is typically described as being extremely smooth, almost as if made of an artificial material like rubber or plastic. Abduction claims are often described as extremely traumatic, similar to an abduction by humans or even a sexual assault in the level of trauma and distress. The eyes are often a focus of abduction claims. They are said not to move or focus in any observable way to the naked eye. Claims often describe a gray staring into the eyes of an abductee when conducting mental procedures. This staring is claimed to induce hallucinogenic stares or directly provoke different emotions. Although abduction claimants often say that the gray was only inches from their face during the staring mid-scan procedure, they often subsequently claim to not feeling breath or seeing the gray's chest move from breathing. Proponents of this theory of alien genetic-slash-evolutionary intervention on Earth argue that if the greys, or similar beings, were performing genetic manipulations and or experience with pre-human life forms on Earth, that these alleged aliens may have attempted to influence the evolution of life forms here in a direction consistent with their own genetic makeup and similar to their own physiology and general physical structure, since genetically that is what they would presumably be most familiar with. Some conspiracy theorists believe that greys represent part of a government-led disinformation or plausible deniability campaign, or that they are a product of government mind control experiments. What do you believe? For now, I'd say this case is, well, let's just say the, the truth is out there. So, the final word on Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Although we may not be alone in the universe, in our own separate ways on this planet, we are all alone.
What's going on out there? What's out there for Jose Chung's from outer space? Try saying that ten times really fast. Once again, I've returned to one of my favorite reviewers for this episode, Sarah Stiegel's 1995 work called Six Degrees of Separation. Someone please come take Darren Morgan gently by the hand and lead him away from the X-Files into his very own series. This man deserves a forum of his own. Jose Chung's From Outer Space is perhaps the last X-Files script we will get from Morgan. And if so, he's going out with a bang. His twisted wit, his involuted sense of reality, and his razor-sharp perception are unparalleled, not just in the X-Files, but in television writing in general. He is, frankly, superfluous on a show about the paranormal. Everything about the man, everything he writes, is already paranormal. To get the full flavor of Darren Morgan, I suspect you need to set him up against the most banal, most suburban of landscapes and turn him loose. Since The X-Files is anything but banal and suburban, the effect is diluted. Contemplate, for example, the intrusion of a stupendous yappy into homicide life on the streets. Every witness who steps forward gets weirder and weirder until we're faced with Hollow Earth enthusiasts and Dungeons and Dragons burnout cases seeking escape from their mundane lives in the arms of alien space brothers. The infamous Men in Black were the faces of Jesse the Body Ventura and Alex Jeopardy Trebek. What genius cast this episode? Flashbacks segues into flashback. Stories conflict, crossover, and reduplicate like the storylines of an old Marvel Comics cosmic makeover. Mulder emits a classic girly scream, and Scully threatens a man with death if he talks about finding a dead alien body. Talk about out of character. There's a famous bit by stand-up comic Stephen Wright that I love. Last night someone came into my house and replaced everything in it with an exact duplicate. In Jose Chung's From Outer Space, Morgan took away Mulder and Scully and replaced them with replicas that were microscopically off. Just enough to set up a standing wave of dissonance within the brain, without setting off the intruder alarms. Darren Morgan's powers of observation are so acute that he can render back Mulder and Scully, not to mention the rest of the universe, with all the right details, but in subtly and disturbingly wrong colors. Beneath the subtle in-jokes and the fractal geometry of the plot, however, lies the heart of this story. Alienation. As Jose Jones says at the end, although we may not be alone in the universe, in our own separate ways, on this planet, we are all alone. In his earlier scripts for Humbug and Clyde Bruckman, Darren Morgan went below the surface of comedy to discover the tragedy of the human condition, that we long for connection but cannot quite achieve it. Those of us who cannot find a connection somewhere end up as lost and isolated as Bruckman or Lieutenant Schaefer who was unable to assure Mulder of his own existence. It is this insight that raises Morgan's work to the level of art, rather than a light entertainment that will be forgotten in a week. He understands on a profound level that to laugh at pain is to learn to endure it, and he understands that the deepest pain is the pain of being, ultimately and finally, alone in the universe. To escape that pain, we invent what we need. Aliens, Lava Men, and Lord Kinbot, or Air Force officers and men in black with a sinister agenda. 
what do I think? First off, I love that mental image of Yappy appearing in Homicide Life on the Streets. This reviewer really nails it, in my opinion, about the fine line between comedy and the common tragedy of feeling isolated, sometimes even when we're in a crowd of other people. Some of the ending voiceover by Jose Chung is some of the most quotable X-Files material, and some that resonates deeply with many fans, myself included. And I do have to point out that Mark Snow's music at the end of this episode is just so beautiful. It's not by accident that I use it as some of my background music. Next up, we have Musings of an X-File. Part of Darren Morgan's genius is that he weaves some of the deeper questions of life into his comedies, and that gives his work weight without bogging it down. The key difference is while all of these episodes subtly address an issue without offering up a solution, Jose Chung comes to a much more obvious conclusion, and it's not a happy one. The message is that if truth even exists, it's elusive, and you can't know it. And without truth, there's no meaning in life. Without meaning, we're all isolated and alone. See? Hopeless. Despite its obvious charm, something has never quite clicked between me and Jose Chung. Call it a glitch in the Matrix. Either that, or it's part of some covert agenda on the part of the military-industrial entertainment complex. I've always assumed that the reason this episode didn't jive with me was the humor barrier. I found all of Darren Morgan's other work on the X-Files hilarious, but the style of Jose Chung is more obvious and, dare I say, more juvenile. But I've realized the issue goes deeper than that. It's Morgan's worldview that's tripping me up. He brings the point home with the way he paints his characters. Take Grokey, Faulkner, and Mulder, for example. With all three, the search for alien life is actually a metaphor for the search for meaning and purpose. The search for truth. Rory's search leads him to a cult to try to make sense of the universe and chart it out in diagrams that he can comprehend. Faulkner has a dead-end life that he's trying to escape, so he watches the skies waiting for someone to take him away to make his life interesting. And Mulder is trying to ease the pain of past trauma and loss, hoping that if he can prove the existence of alien life, what happened to him and his sister will, what, make sense? Now, I take this review because I don't necessarily agree with at least one major point in it. I think the humor is top-notch, clever, and somewhat edgy without being juvenile. Something I think has sadly disappeared from most movies and TV shows in general over roughly the last 15 years. With a few notable exceptions. I did laugh my tail off at the alien comedy Paul, which came out relatively recently. And I still crack up at so many scenes and one-liners in Jose Chung's From Outer Space. At one other point, this review also mentions that it borders on teenage boy humor, and I don't think that's the case. If you want to see that, check out some of the stuff passed off as comedy in movies and TV today. If Jose Chung's From Outer Space does fall into that category, it's an extremely mild version of that kind of humor. But everyone does have different ideas of what's funny and different points of view, so this review was thought-provoking and enjoyable to read all the same. As always, check out our show notes page for links to full versions of both these reviews.
Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Chloe. Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile, Jose Chung. From our featured episode, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, as portrayed by Charles Nelson Riley. Jose Chung was an author whose self-described lovable flamboyancy made him not only a literary icon, but a cultural one as well. Some of his earliest work was for the magazine The Dark Mask, where he worked alongside several other young writers, including Juggernaut Onan Gupta. After he became a successful novelist, his celebrity rose to the point where he was asked to appear in an award-winning film at Cannes, which may have been an exaggeration, as it bore a great resemblance to the children's show H.R. Puffin Stuff. Over the years, he wrote a number of books, including a thriller titled The Caligarian Candidate, for which he researched the CIA's MK Ultra Mind Control Program, and A Lapful of Tongues, which he regards as the worst book he's ever written. At some point in his life, Chung made remarks to Onan Gupta, which may have inspired the basis for Gupta's self-made religion, Selfosophy, although Chung never realized this until years later. It should be noted that Chung told this story to a self-Ophacy believer after writing a short story very critical of the religion, and he may have been lying simply to irritate his listener or simply exaggerating the incident in question. Chung interviewed FBI Special Agent Dana Scully, a fan of many of his books and several other witnesses for a book entitled From Outer Space. With that said, Scully told Chung about her encounter with abductee Chrissy Giorgio and Harold Lamb. With that story and others that Chung has gathered, his book was ready to be made and published. In the basement X-Files office of the J. Edgar Hoover FBI building, author Jose Chung contemplates the UFO on Fox Mulder's I Want to Believe poster, admitting that he never gave much thought to the idea of life on other planets. Chung's interviewee, Special Agent Dana Scully, says that she also did not consider it much before she took her current job, and apologizes for the absence of Mulder, her FBI partner. She and Chung exchange compliments with Scully confessing to being a fan of Chung's literary work. When Scully becomes curious why Chung is writing a book about an alien abduction, even though he has no interest in such matters, he explains that his motive is profit from creating, with his next book, a new literary genre, non-fiction science fiction. Scully urges him to report the truth in his book, but Chung worldly explains that the truth is entirely subjective. As he takes notes, Scully begins to recall what happened, mentioning that the supposedly abducted girl was found on the morning after her disappearance had been reported. He and Scully discuss whether they prefer the term abductee or experiencer, and Scully explains that the girl was considered to be neither at the time she was found, as she seemed to have been the victim of date rape instead. In the X-Files office, Scully specifies that she is skeptical about the use of hypnosis as an aid of memory. Chung, mentioning one of his previous books that Scully compliments, muses over the unexplained power of hypnotism. Scully explains to Chung that even though she is using a stand-in verb for her account, the detective did actually swear. She's about to reveal what expletive manners really used when Chung stops her from doing so, admitting that he himself is already well aware of the detective's colorful phraseology. 
Chung and Scully discuss their extreme skepticism concerning Rocky and his claims, but Chung is more profuse in his doubtful reaction and wonders how Mulder could have believed such nonsense. Scully explains that, on their usual X-File investigations, Mulder commonly explores every possibility. Jose Chung questions the geeky Blaine Faulkner, who explains his bizarre desire to be abducted by aliens and begins recalling that he had been out in the field. As he wanders through that darkened field, he tells Chung that he was hoping to stumble across one of the few UFO sightings that had been reported in the area. Moments later, he stumbles in the field, and as he races back away from an unseen horror, he relates to Chung his own regrets regarding having called the authorities. As Blaine explains to Chung that his regrets came from encountering the authorities' companions, who he describes as men in black, Scully and Mulder arrive in the field with Detective Manners and several officers encountering Blaine. Back in Mulder's basement office, Scully passionately repudiates their, this account in her conversation with Chung and remembers that the investigators even allowed Blaine to view the subsequent autopsy. In Blaine's bedroom, Chung wonders why his interviewee is not nervous telling his story, but Blaine attributes his courage to years of playing Dungeons and Dragons, a statement that Chung laughs at before realizing that Blaine is being serious. Two years later, he journeyed to Seattle while doing research for his book, Doomsday Defense. Running afoul of the Institute of Self-Ophacy, founded by his former colleague Gupta, he was targeted by the so-called Self-Ophacy Psycho while assisting Frank Black in investigating the unrelated case of the Nostradamus nutball. Self-Ophacy Psycho intended to kill Chung, but failed to do so and died shortly thereafter. Chung completed his work on Doomsday Defense, but was murdered by the nutball with a pickaxe on the same day. Originally, Jose Chung was actually an entirely fictitious character created by the writing staff as a practical joke. Writer John Scheiben repeatedly phoned the office pretending to be this character who was supposedly an aspiring writer, intensely curious about an unsolicited script he had submitted, even though Chung kept being dismissed. His repeated dismissals prompted more than a little surprise and confusion from the recipient of the calls when Chung's name turned up on the script for this episode. When Charles Nelson Riley came into audition, Morgan and Frank Spotnitz turned to one another, impressed, and commented that Riley had been very good. According to Rick Milliken, however, there was some initial uncertainty regarding Riley's audition, but there was no question after the fact that he was the right person for this episode's title role. Riley was perhaps the biggest revelation to the crew, several members of whom approached Morgan to thank him for casting Riley. The actor captivated virtually everyone involved in the episode and energized the production staff with his infectious enthusiasm. Comparing Riley to Peter Boyle, who had appeared in the title role of Clyde Buckman's Final Repose, but upon arrival had not wanted to do the episode, R.W. Goodwin saw that Riley certainly wanted to do this episode and was even thrilled to be doing it, profusely thanking Goodwin. Costume designer Jeannie Gullett and assistant costume designer Janice Swayze both found Riley to be by far the most interesting guest they costumed during the X-Files third season. Charles Nelson Riley subsequently reprised his role as writer Jose Chung in the Millennium episode Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, making his character the only one to have appeared in the X-Files before making a crossover appearance in Millennium. The two most frequently seen main characters from Millennium, Frank and Jordan Black, also made a crossover appearance between the series when they both appeared in the X-Files 7th season episode Millennium. 
Charles Nelson Riley was born January 13, 1931, and died May 25, 2007. He was an actor, comedian, director, and drama teacher, known for his comedic roles in stages, films, children's television, and cartoons, and probably most famously as a game show panelist on Password Plus, Super Password, and Match Game, among many others. The Stone Gunman Media Report. The X Files, a board game. Trust no one. Join the most famous paranormal investigation team of all time. Players will work together to traverse the United States searching for clues and closing investigations. Attempting to foil them at all times is the player-controlled cigarette smoking man who will be working to manipulate investigations and obfuscate clues in hopes of stalling out the player's investigations. With gameplay focusing on the hit series pool of iconic characters and most popular monsters of the week, The X-Files, a board game, is sure to be a hit. Coming from IDW Games, July 2014. dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. Lots of files. Lots and lots of files. Files from X-Files.
Hey, Agent Shadow. This is Agent Donald. Um, I don't know if you want to play this on your podcast or just listen to it, but either way, uh, good to talk to you again, buddy. It's been a while. I recently came across something in my Twitter feed that someone directed towards me that there's new leadership at 20th Century Fox. And you may already know this news. You may have already broken it on the podcast. But it looks like Chris Carter is hinting that there may be more X-Files to come under this new regime or new leadership at 20th Century Fox. That's really all the article said. It's very cryptic and there's no details yet. But I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. You know, I had some time to think and... I would imagine it wouldn't be a series focusing on the the Mulder and Scully characters, at least as we know them. Uh, There's a couple of possibilities, such as a reboot, where it is Mulder and Scully again, played by different actors, which I don't think will go off well with any X-Files fans. It could be new younger agents. It could be uh, Reyes, Doggett, although they're probably a, a little too old at this point, at least Doggett is. Um... I was just curious, like, what goes through your head when you hear that? The first thing that went through my head was excitement. So I'm pretty sure the uh, same thing will go through yours. But then you start thinking, maybe this isn't a good idea. Don't ruin it. You know, stuff like that. I am not opposed to the idea of more X-Files. I would just like it to be done, you know, done right and done with respect. So I'll just run that idea past you guys and talk, talk to you later, man. Checked your email. I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone, we got a couple of tweets on Twitter, both from Sunny Day at Blurific 63 Hey guys, I'm catching up on your podcasts, loving them so much. I've just rewatched X-Files seasons 4 to 8 and still going. And the second one is, keep up the great work. I appreciate it. Love listening to your take on each episode and love hearing pieces from each one. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. I know I tweeted you a response, but I wanted to say thanks again on the podcast. Very glad you're enjoying it. Up next, we have a special contribution sent in to us by one of our longtime listeners, Shane Poole. It's called The History of the X-Files on VHS in the UK. Here goes. Hello, agents. It's the vice chairman of planning here. Wanted to give you the strange tale of the history of the X-Files on VHS in the UK. When 20th Century Fox started to release the X-Files, they followed the standard way of releasing shows doing two episodes on one VHS, starting with Volume 1 and featuring the pilot and Deep Throat. They released four volumes that way, finishing Volume 4, Ghost in the Machine and Ice. As far as I'm aware, they were not widely distributed. I never saw them in my local shops. It was after this that 20th Century Fox changed its strategy with its file, one called The Unopened File, 
containing the episodes Anasazi, The Blessing Way, and Paperclip, edited together to make one feature-length episode. Why was it called The Unopened File, I hear you ask? Well, the reason was that The Blessing Way and Paperclip were yet to be aired on UK TV. The Unopened File came with a limited edition box called the Forensic Evidence Box that included VHS containing the TV special Secret of the X-Files tape. That box also had space for the next three files. File 2 was called Tombs, containing Squeeze and Tombs, again edited together to make one long episode. They would continue to edit shows together in all their file VHS formats. File 3 was called Abduction, containing Dwayne Barry, Ascension, and One Breath. The next release was File 5, 82517, containing Nisei and 731, skipping File 4 as 20th Century Fox wanted to keep up with the latest aired shows. That was a late change to the release schedule, as review copies of File 4 had already been sent out to magazines. The next file was not numbered, as it was only available via mail order. That file was called Piper Maru, that contained Piper Maru and Apocrypha. File 6 was called The Master Plan, containing Telethokomi and Heronvolk. It was around this time that 20th Century Fox started to release season box sets, starting with season 1, releasing one every six months, one around Christmas, and the next one around June. It was also around this time that the unreleased File 4 started to go for silly prices in the small ads in the sci-fi magazines. I saw one for 200 pounds, $350. File 7 was Tunguska, Tunguska and Terma, also available with File 7, was the second forensic evidence box, too, containing a VHS of More Secrets of the X-Files TV special. The next release was the delayed File 4, it was a limited edition run of 10,000 copies. File 4 was called Colony, containing Colony and Endgame from Season 2. 20th Century Fox would continue releasing the multi-part mythology episodes as numbered files, with a few exceptions. I will get to them shortly. File 8 was Tempest Fugit, Tempest Fugit and Max. File 9 was Redo, Guesame, Redo, and Redo 2. File 10, Emily, Christmas Carol, and Emily. File 11, Patient X, Patient X, and The Red and the Black. File 12 only contained the one episode, The End. However, it also contained a 45-minute making-of special for the first X-Files movie. The next file was unnumbered. The file was Dreamland, containing the Dreamland two-parter. File 13, One Son, Two Fathers, and One Son. File 14, Biogenesis, Biogenesis, The Sixth Extinction, and The Sixth Extinction 2, Amorphate. The next release was also unnumbered. It was called Millennium, containing Season 7, Episode 5, Millennium, and also the last two episodes of Season 3 of the TV series Millennium, Via Dolores, and Goodbye to All That. Side note to Millennium. Only the first season of Millennium has ever been released on VHS here in the UK. File 15, Closure, Zion Under Zet, and Closure. It was also at this point that 20th Century Fox decided to stop numbering the files and also release a dual release on VHS and DVD. Requiem, 
Requiem, within and without, dead alive, this is not happening, and dead alive, existence, essence and existence, nothing important happened today, part one and two, providence, provenance and providence, the last file was the truth. After all that, I bet you're wondering, what file was my first? Well, it was file one, the unopened file. It was also my first X-File experience. I was interested in the sticker on the front of the VHS, never before seen in the UK, and the rest is history. The VHS opened with an amazing trailer for File 2, Tombs. I will be putting that on the X-Files Truth Facebook page. Thanks for an amazing podcast. Looking forward to listening to the next show. That is really cool. I like the idea of an X-Files episode, plus its sequel edited together in one tape. Oftentimes, I'll watch an episode, and then I'll skip to its sequel on DVD, or Amazon, or Netflix. I think the last one I did that with was Pusher, and then Kitsunigari. But still, seeing episodes edited together without that break where you're pushing a bunch of buttons on the remote would be a different experience. This tale of the X-Files on VHS in the UK is definitely pretty interesting, and one with a few twists and turns. I did learn a few details I wasn't aware of before. I really enjoyed this report from the Vice Chairman of Planning. Thank you very much to Shane for taking the time to send it in. If any of our other listeners have some X-Files trivia, or anything else X-Files related you'd like to share with us, you're more than welcome to send us an email at xfilestruth at live.com. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter at xfilestruth and like us on Facebook at xfilestruthpodcast. The truth is still out there, people. Go find it. Tell you this in closing I know we might seem imposing But trust me If we ever show in your section Believe me It's for your own protection Cause we see things that you need not see And we be places that you need not be So go with your life Forget the Roswell crap Show love to the black suit Cause that's the men in That's the men in Next time on X-Files Truth. When assistant director Skinner wakes up in a hotel bed next to a murdered prostitute, Mulder and Scully join the investigation to prove their boss's innocence. As they unravel the threads of a conspiracy, Mulder also becomes convinced that Skinner has been haunted since his tour of duty in Vietnam by a hag-like apparition known as a succubus. That closes the file for Jose Chung's From Outer Space. 
We have a few more things before we go today. Like I said, it's going to be a long show. First, all four of us here at X-Files Truth did a special interview with Kevin Hale from Inhale, Exhale on July 9th. You can hear the interview at our site at xfilestruth.com or by clicking on blogtalkradio.com slash inhale underscore exhale. It won't be on our regular iTunes feed, so if you want to hear the interview, you'll need to go to blogtalkradio or xfilestruth.com. Next, we got an email from Professor Allen, the host of the Quarter Bin podcast. He says, Agents, I wanted you to know that we played your promo again in a recent episode of one of our comic book shows, Uncovering the Bronze Age. The story had sort of a creepy X-Files vibe, and we played some of Mark Snow's variations on a theme under the episode, so it made sense to promote your show as well. His show is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, and he finishes by saying, I continue to enjoy your show. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, host, Quarterbin Podcast. Also, I wanted to say thanks to Agent Donald from Reopening the X-Files for sending in his file from X-Files MP3. Donald got me started in podcasting when he asked me to join him as a co-host for Reopening the X-Files many years ago, or so it seems. There probably wouldn't be an X-Files truth if it wasn't for Reopening the X-Files, so thanks very much, Donald, and it was great hearing from you. Maybe you can send in more audio files on a more regular basis in the future. That would be very cool. One more note. Agent Shane from the Red Dwarf intro cast also has a show called Oh No You Didn't. And it'll be talking about the episode 3 from the X-Files. He's asked the agents here at X-Files Truth to join him. And at the time of this recording right now, Wednesday the 31st, the show hasn't aired yet. But we'll record it tonight, and it does sound like a lot of fun, so you guys should be hearing that pretty soon. And finally, if you got multiple downloads of Hell Money or Teso Dos Bichos, I apologize. Our hosting website uploaded those episodes more than once, so there's more than one copy at iTunes. I have updated that, so it should be corrected by now. But a special thanks to those of you who still go to iTunes and uh, go above and beyond to leave us iTunes reviews. Those make the biggest difference. Remember to find out about the music that we used on today's podcast. And to see how they're connected to the episode, go to xfilestruth.com. And you can also follow Snowtracks there. And you can check out all the X-Files Truth agents video pages to see what we like. If you want to be notified as soon as we post an episode or a special, just go to xfilestruth.com and click the follow button near the top of the page. So that wraps it up for Jose Chung's From Outer Space. An excellent episode, and we will see you guys next month for another really good episode called Avatar. See you next month.
Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th Century Fox. What I find fantastic is any notion that there are answers beyond the realm of science, 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 Terrestrial life alive on this planet. But where's the science in all of this, Molly? This is the essence of science. You ask an impertinent question, and you're on your way to a pertinent answer. Science fiction. Science fiction. Science fiction. Science fiction. Well, that is science fiction. It doesn't hold a drop, 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 drop of water. Give me something in the way of proof. Science. 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 Help me find some science that I can hang this on. What you can't question is the science. Listen, Mulder. I don't think the science works that way. Listen, Mulder. The science makes no sense to me. Listen, Mulder. What you can't question is the science. Science, 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 science. You know, I've always held science as sacred. Art science. Based on the science, based on the science, even science can't explain how lightning works. Look, I've had my fair share of outrageous conspiracy theories, okay? So cut the mystery crap and get to the science. A composite description derived from overlap and claims would have Gray's as small-bodied, sexless beings with smooth, gray-colored skin, enlarged head, and large black eyes. Hey, I think that's what I look like. Never mind. And I wouldn't flaunt your ignorance by telling anyone that you saw anything last night other than the planet Venus. Because if you do, you're a dead man. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.